0: Hey, uh, good evening, Fathom Academy. Uh, Thanks for uh, joining us again. Uh, I'm Pastor Chris, the pastor of Fathom Church. Uh, Good to be with you again uh, for week four of Fathom Academy. Um, uh, This week, we're going to jump into uh, really part two of what we learned last week, uh, which is essentially Christology, the study of who uh, Jesus Christ, the, the second person of uh, the triune Godhead is. And so uh, Ryan's going to come up here and, and bring us uh, s- some really important teaching that I, that I hope will edify and build you up, challenge you a little bit. Uh, if you have any questions or comments during uh, this, this stream, if you're watching it uh, as it's airing, uh, please jump into the chat, uh, say hi, uh, drop us your questions. We are going to be fielding those and uh, would love to interact with you. Uh, but let me just pray as we begin and we'll get into this yeah Father, thank you for uh, your grace once again. Thank you for sending your Son. thank you for for the the person and work of Jesus Christ, who He is and what he accomplished uh, for us. And, and Lord, today we wanna honor him as we study uh, more about who Jesus is. Uh, there may be no better endeavor for us to spend an hour on a Thursday night than to study who uh, the, the son, the Christ, the, the the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Lord, be uh, in, in our midst. Holy Spirit, move in our minds. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit. Amen.
1: All right. Well, howdy, folks of Fathom Academy. It's good to be with you again here in week four. A lot has changed in these past three weeks. We've covered a lot of ground. I appreciate you bearing with me. And one of the things that has changed is I got a haircut, my first post-quarantine haircut, which was long overdue, as I'm sure you could tell from the HD video. Uh, So uh, as Chris mentioned, we are diving back into Christology uh as i mentioned last week we can be wrong a lot about a lot of things in christian theology but we really can't be wrong about the person of the son because uh as paul says god was in christ reconciling the world to himself so uh the whole economy of salvation the whole scheme of salvation depends on the person of jesus christ so we're going to spend some more time looking at him uh here in uh week four together um So, as you may recall from last week, we spent some time sort of untangling what the New Testament teaches about Jesus. And as you may recall, we talked about how the New Testament is trying to hold together two theses, that Jesus Christ is fully and completely human in terms of his biology, in terms of his psychology, and he is fully and completely divine. He shares a divine essence with the Father and the Spirit, the triune God, and yet he exists as one concrete human person. We talked about the difficulties of conceptualizing a person like this and how the early Christian writers sort of had to invent language and category to talk about Jesus. So uh, we're going to pick up where we left off, Uh, but we're not so much going to be in the New Testament today. We are going to be in the first, I don't know, 400 years or so of Christian history after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because you may be surprised to learn that it actually took the church about 400 years to formulate Christology into a sort of binding and universal doctrine. Uh, As we're going to see today, it's very, very difficult to talk about Christology because there are all kinds of unsatisfactory ways of talking about the relationship between the divine and human natures in Jesus. Uh, And it can feel like almost anywhere you step, you're committing a heresy. So we're going to have to be very careful today. So we're going to be looking at the development of the person of Jesus Christ Christ, as a doctrine in the first 400 uh, years or so of the Christian faith. So that's where we're gonna be today. And to sort of pick up the plot, I wanna introduce you here to a quote from the Anglican theologian John Macquarie, uh, who wrote an important book called Jesus Christ in Modern Thought. And Macquarie says this Some measure of paradox could hardly have been avoided if early Christian writers were going to remain faithful to the New Testament witness. For according to that witness, Jesus Christ was, on the one hand, completely human, yet on the other, sent by God and so close to God that Christians could no longer speak of God without also speaking of Christ, and they could no longer speak of Christ without also speaking of God. Uh, I think this is a really insightful little quotation because it it gets to the heart of the paradox of the incarnation. Now, a paradox is an interesting category. Uh, Sometimes we confuse it with a contradiction. But a paradox is not a contradiction. A contradiction uh, is uh, two, uh, two claims that are trying to say different things in the same manner at the same time and in the same respect. A paradox is something that appears contradictory on the surface, but actually is part of a deeper truth. So a good example of a paradox might be uh, your children, those of you who are parents. Your children are both the greatest source of your joy and the greatest source of your grief. Those things seem like opposite. Yes, the, yeah, but they're completely true when they're held together. That's a paradox. And Macquarie is saying here that the New Testament presents Jesus Christ as a paradox. He's fully human, fully divine. Uh, and so he he, uh, he sort of expresses that it, be, it was very, very diff- difficult for early Christians to come up with language to talk about what is happening in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the story we're going to be telling today because early Christians came to see that they could no longer talk about God without talking about Jesus, and they could no longer talk about Jesus without talking about God. So how did they hash this out? Well, uh, if I can put it this way, it wasn't a smooth road to a universal uh, Christological doctrine. There were lots of tries at speaking about Jesus that were inadequate in some ways harmful in other ways. And so we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about some early Christological heresies. Uh, Now, heresy is an important word. I want to make just a a brief comment on the use of heresy, because I think that heresy, especially in certain uh, Protestant circles, is tossed around a little bit too lightly. Uh, To call something a heretical view is to make a very serious charge. Now, how do we define heresy? Well, uh, I like to use the definition of the 19th century German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher. I think he gives a very good definition of heresy, which is a little bit ironic because some people think that Schleiermacher himself is a heretic. Uh, That's neither here nor there. We can talk about that later if you like. But Schleiermacher defined a heresy like this. He said a heresy is something that appears Christian superficially, but if we follow it to its logical conclusion, it undermines the essence of the Christian faith. Now, that's a really good definition, because a heresy has to look Christian on the surface to qualify as a heresy. So uh, on this, uh, so for instance, uh, atheism or the new atheist or Buddhism or Hinduism, those aren't heresies. They're just simply non-Christian beliefs. Heresies originate from within the church. They are trying to express Christian doctrine faithfully, but they're doing, uh, they're doing so in a way that is fatally flawed. So uh, on one level, we need to remember that heretics didn't just sort of think to themselves, do you know what would be hilarious is if I introduced an aberrant teaching about Jesus Christ and it sort of destroyed the church and it frustrated students who are trying to learn about Christology, you know, 15 centuries later. It's not what heretics are doing. They're actually trying to express the truth of the Christian faith, but they're doing it in a way way that ultimately undermines Christianity's essence. Uh, In other words, all these heretical Christologies that we're going to look at Uh, if you follow them all the way to the conclusion of what they imply, you end up undermining God's saving action in Jesus. The economy of salvation falls apart. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, early Christian theologians were tasked with holding together this paradox, the full humanity, full deity of Jesus. Uh, And there were a couple of ways uh, that we can easily identify Christological heresies, because one of the things that these heresies do is they obviously and too easily dissolve that paradox. And what I mean is, instead of saying, uh, doing the hard work of saying that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and we somehow have to fit that together, they either emphasize that Jesus is only human or that he's only divine. And then there was a third school of heresies that kind of struggled with the relationship between the human and divine. So you can end up with a heretical Christology, either by emphasizing Jesus's humanity at the expense of his deity, or uh, emphasizing his deity at the expense of his his humanity, or somehow uh, misapprehending the relationship between the deity and the humanity. So we're gonna look at three general species of Christological heresy in the early church. Uh, And the reason we're gonna do it this way is we've got a lot to learn uh, from heresies, because by looking at the ways that we cannot speak about Jesus Christ, We can sort of whittle down to what we can say about him and how we can uh, speak about Jesus Christ faithfully. Now I'm going to introduce you to a bunch of heresies here. The names are not important. There's going to be lots of labels. And unless you're like pretty seriously nerdy and really into church history, the names are not going to matter. What I want you to understand is the ideas behind the heresies and why they don't work. Right? So uh, that's how we're going to proceed. And so, um, On the one hand, I'm going to introduce you to a handful of early Christian heresies that emphasized uh, the deity of Jesus to such a degree that they actually ended up discounting his genuine humanity. And they did these uh, things in a couple of ways. The first uh, is a view called Apollinarianism. This takes its name from a fellow named Apollinaris, who was uh, a bishop in Laodicea in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, in the fourth century. And Apollinarius thought uh, that Jesus had a physical body. His biology was truly human, but instead of a human mind, instead of a human intellect, uh, the Logos had taken the place of a human soul. So Jesus had a physical human body, but he did not have a human psychology. He was indwelt by the Logos, right? The second person of the Trinity who kind of takes on the body of Jesus as sort of like a spacesuit, right? Uh, and so, uh, according to Apollinaris, at least, uh, if we take his view to its logical conclusion, Jesus is not actually a real human being at all, right? He's a human body occupied by a divine mind. Now that's not a human being. That's one half of a human being because to be human is to have a human biology, but also to have a human psychology, right? And as we talked about last week, the new Testament is very clear that Jesus has a fully human psychology. He grieves when his friends uh, die. He uh, weeps uh, at the sight of death or disease or pain. Uh, He feels compassion when he sees people who are in need of help. Uh, And he experiences fear when he faces down his own death by crucifixion. But there's another problem too. Uh, another early Christian theologian, a guy by the name of Gregory of Nazianzus, has a very famous dictum. And the dictum is this, that which is not assumed is not healed. What he meant by that is the incarnation is God's way of taking up our full humanity into himself and healing it. And the problem with Apollinarius's view is that Jesus only takes up our physical humanity, not our emotional or psychological humanity. And if Gregory is right, uh, that means that we are not fully saved if Apollinarius is to be uh, trusted here. Because Lord knows, it's not just our bodies that need redeeming, it's actually our whole psychology. Actually, our psychology probably needs more redeeming than our uh, our physical bodies. Uh, and if Jesus Christ did not assume a fully human existence, including a human psychology, then we are still broken right? That which is not assumed is not healed. So the name's not important, but the idea that Jesus has a fully human psychology is important. A second uh, view that emphasized Jesus's deity to such an extent that it actually ended up denying his true humanity is a view called docetism. This was very, very common in the first couple of centuries of uh, Christian history. And docetism takes its name from the Greek word meaning to seem, to seem, or to appear. And this is the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. In fact, his human body was not real. It was a phantasm. Now, the reason that Docitus taught this is because they were totally scandalized by the idea that God, who is perfect and eternal spirit, could join himself to an imperfect and a corrupt human body. And it was even more scandalous uh, that God could somehow die in a human body. So, in order to safeguard against that, the Docetists said, Well, it's not true. His body only appeared to be real, it only seemed to be real. And at the crucifixion, uh, Jesus only seems to die. Couple problems here. The New Testament, uh, if you notice, absolutely makes clear that Jesus has a real, tangible, physical human body that is absolutely real, just like yours and mine. Uh, are absolutely real. So a good example is in, well, in the book of First John, for instance, right at the beginning of the letter, he says that we are bearing witness to that which we have seen with our eyes and we've touched, right? Uh, the Greek word for touch there is a very tangible sort of uh, crude word. We've handled it with our hands, right? So early Christians absolutely emphasized that Jesus's physical body was real, right? Because according to Gregory, That which is not assumed is not healed. So unless he takes a fully human body, we are still dead in our sins, right? The economy of salvation falls apart if you adopt a docetist view. I'll introduce very briefly a couple of related views uh, that emphasize the uh, divinity of Jesus at the expense of his deity. These are two views called monophysitism and monothelitism. They... uh, come from a, uh, their Greek compound words. The first, mono, uh, in Greek is a prefix that means one. And then the second word, phusis, uh, where we get the word physical, right? And in Greek, actually, the word means nature. And this is the idea that Jesus actually only really has one nature. He has a divine nature and not a human nature, right? This view was circulating uh, in the first few centuries of the Christian church because it was incomprehensible, that the divine might somehow become human. So this is a a version of docetism, which claimed that his humanity must only appear to be real, but it actually isn't. Uh, A related view is Monothelitism. This is a a compound word, mono, and uh, thelema is the Greek word that means will. And this is the idea that Jesus only has one will. He only has a divine will and not a human will. Well, the difficulty here is, how do you reconcile a passage like the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus seems to be very clearly uh, saying, I, in my humanity, want something uh, that is different than what God wants, right? Uh, He says to his father, if there's any other way to do this that doesn't end with me on a cross, could we do that, please? But at the end, he says, actually, all right, not my will, but your will be done. There's a sense in which Jesus has to struggle to subordinate his human will to the divine will. That came to be the orthodox position. Now, all of these views, Apollinarianism, Docetism, Monophysitism, Monothelitism, they are all expressions uh, in one form or another of uh, a very pervasive way of thinking in the ancient world known as Gnosticism. You may have heard of Gnosticism before. Gnosticism was uh, a sort of philosophy that circulated in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and it had a few basic tenets. Uh, Number one, uh, the Gnostics believed that the created world that we experience it was not the work of some wise and uh, beneficent, all-powerful creator god. It was, in fact, the botched job of a lesser deity called the Demiurge. And this god uh, is a god, but sort of sucks at being a god and made a bad job of the creation. And so they believed that the created order was imperfect and actually evil. In Gnosticism, uh, the stuff of physical existence is evil, it's wretched. And they, com- they compared the body, a uh, physical body, to a prison, right, that needs to be escaped, right? So a Gnostic uh, view poses a very strict dualism between spirit and flesh. Body, uh, evil, matter, evil, spirit, good. And that's where the name Gnosticism comes from. It actually comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics taught... Uh, that the whole point of the spiritual life was to escape the physical realm into the realm of the spiritual. Uh, And unfortunately, Gnosticism has seeped into some of our vocabulary as evangelical Christians and some of our worship songs, things like this. That's a story for another day. Don't get me started uh, because I could go for a while. Gnosticism uh, most basically said that there is no way that God, who is perfect spirit, could join himself to a human body which is broken, which is ugly, which is messy, and which is ruled by passions, unruly passions like lust and anger, right? The Gnostics simply could not imagine that God uh, would join himself to matter. And yet the doctrine of the incarnation shows that the God of Christian scripture values matter, right? He loves it and he actually joins himself to it in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it very poignantly and very simply in uh, uh, Mere Christianity. He says, God likes matter. He made it, right? So the incarnation is tied to the doctrine of creation. The incarnation shows that God values us in all of our sort of ugly and messy physicality, and in fact, that he intends to redeem all of us as whole persons. So against Gnosticism, uh, early Orthodox Christianity uh, stressed that as scandalous as it is, Jesus Christ took on a fully human life, right, in terms of psychology and biology. So there's a a species of heresies that stresses the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. But on the other side, there were a couple of very important heresies that so uh, emphasized Jesus's humanity uh, that they actually uh, underplayed Jesus's deity, right? So they, they made the opposite error of that first species of heresies we looked at. A very popular one, especially in the first two centuries of the Christian age, is a view called Ebionism, uh, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as adoptionism. This was a very common uh, heresy in the first two centuries, uh, which developed in Jewish Christian circles. And the Ebionites taught, that Jesus Christ, uh, when he was born, Yeshua of Nazareth, was an ordinary human being, but he was possessed by the Spirit of God uh, and then adopted as the Son of God at some point in his ministry. Usually, Ebionites said this happened at his baptism. So Jesus was an ordinary human being, but like one of the prophets of Israel— He was possessed uh, by the Spirit of God with such power that we can now speak of him as somehow being God himself, but only as having been adopted. Now, the problem with this, a couple problems. Number one, the New Testament very clearly teaches that Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, is preexistent, is the technical uh, theological language. It's another way of saying that the Son has always been, right? So the son does not come into existence. uh, And Jesus Christ, uh, according to early Christian teaching, was somehow uh, God, even in the womb and even as an infant. He's not adopted as the son of God at some later point in his ministry. A second very, very important heresy, very influential, which really shaped uh, early Christian thinking about Jesus uh, as they reacted against it is a view called Arianism. Arianism takes its name from a fellow named Arius, who is a priest, all right? So he's not some sort of uh, anti-Christian fanatic. He's not an atheist. He's not some fringe lunatic. He is a priest in the church of Alexandria in the fourth century in North uh, North Egypt, Alexandria. And Arius had trouble envisioning how it was possible uh, that, that God could be born of a woman which I'll grant you is a pretty hard puzzle to figure out. Uh, and he said, that uh, is not possible because God can't change. And so to be born into a human likeness is change. And since we know that God can't change, uh, this is Arius thinking here, since we know that God can't change, then mustn't we say that Jesus Christ is not God in the same way that God the Father is God? This is how Arius thought about the question. Um, And so what got him into trouble is he had a catchphrase where he said, there was a time when the son was not. Arius taught uh, that Jesus Christ uh, is the son of God, but only by adoption. And he is not co-eternal with the father. He came into existence when he was born uh, of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and so he said, there was a time when the Son was not. This was a problem because the New Testament clearly seems to teach that the Son has existed from all eternity with the Father. This is how Jesus speaks about himself, for instance, in the Gospel of John, where he tells he talks to his father about sharing glory before the creation of the world. Uh, and there was a time when the Son was not. And so Arius ended up teaching a very controversial doctrine. Uh, and the, the big controversy swirled around these two Greek words, homoousius and homoousius. You may notice that there's only a difference of one letter in these two words, an I in Greek, an iota, right? Uh, The sort of cynical British historian Edward Gibbon said that Christianity was torn in half in the fourth century by a diphthong. Uh, If you know what a diphthong is, if you're really into grammar, a diphthong is the sound that two vowels make together. So the homoi, the oi sound is a diphthong. And that truly is the only difference between these two words on a grammatical level. But doctrinally, there's a massive difference between these two. Uh, The Orthodox Christian position is that Jesus Christ is homoousius with the Father. He is of the same substance. Of the same substance. Homo meaning same. Usia uh, is a word we learned last week. Uh, No, in week one, when we talked about the Trinity, it means essence. So homoousia means that Jesus shares one identical divine essence to the father, Arius said, nope, that's close, but actually we should say homoiusius, which means of similar substance. So even though the grammatical difference is only one letter, you can see that the doctrinal difference is uh, really wide. It's because uh, Arius is saying he is of similar stuff to the father, not the same stuff which means that Jesus Christ is the most important creature that has ever existed. And we can even speak of Jesus Christ as being God, but only as adopted by the Father. Now, the problem, uh, as Orthodox Christians argued, namely a guy named Athanasius, it's a name you may know, Athanasius uh, was one of Arius's chief critics. And Athanasius said at the end of the day, if Arius is right, then Jesus Christ is just a creature, a really impressive creature, really powerful creature and even uh, sort of an adopted divine creature, but a creature nonetheless. And Athanasius says, creatures cannot save creatures, right? Unless Jesus Christ is God himself sharing a divine essence with the persons of the Trinity, then we are still dead in our sins, right? Because if a creature could save another creature, Jesus never would have had to come in the first place. We'll come back to that when we look at the Nicene Creed here in a minute. So, There are heresies that emphasize Jesus's divinity to such an extent that they diminish or even deny his true humanity. And on the other side, there are heresies that so emphasize Jesus's humanity that they obscure or even deny his full deity. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there's this third species of heresy, uh, which misapprehends the union between the divine and the human. I just want to introduce you to two of these here briefly. The first is a view uh, associated with a fellow named Nestorius, who was the Bishop of Constantinople, a very, very important Christian leader in the ancient Christian world, Bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century. Now, Nestorius had a couple of uh, problems thinking about the relationship between the divine and the human. And actually, we might be able to understand where he's coming from. He says, for instance, how is it possible to speak of God being born of a human woman? This is some of the same questions that Arius had. Uh... Can God be born, right? That's a hard question. A second question he had is, how can we talk about a divine person being hungry or being tired or dying? Nestorius says that uh, it is inconsistent with God's nature to die, right? And yet the New Testament shows Jesus dying on a cross. So what's going on there? That's a hard question. The way that Nestorius solved this is by saying that there are... uh, Two natures in the person of Jesus Christ, but they are divisible and they're not combined in any sort of permanent or ontological sense in the person of Jesus at the level of being. So what what this ended up looking like is that for Nestorius, you essentially have two subjects in the person of Jesus. There's a divine one and a human one. And they can be doing different things at different times. So for instance, while uh, the divine nature of Jesus doesn't need anything at all, the human nature of Jesus is hungry or tired or needs a drink uh, or needs a nap. Uh, And then uh, most controversially on the cross, the the divine nature does not die. Only the human nature dies, according to Nestorius. Now that view, uh, while we may be able to understand it, is uh, actually really problematic because as Orthodox critics asked, well, if it's just a human being dying on the cross, right? If it's just Jesus's human nature dying on the cross and not his divine nature, then isn't that just a guy up there dying on a cross? Thousands of people died on crosses in Rome. What's so special about this guy? And so that's the problem with sort of separating the two persons, right? Uh, Where one can be doing one thing and not the other the Orthodox position came to say that as mysterious as it is, there is only one acting subject in Jesus. There is only one subject who performs the verbs, if I can put it that way, right? Now, this led to another controversy. It had been uh, Orthodox to refer to Mary as Theotokos, the bearer of God, right? And in fact, this is the language that the Creed uses, bearer of God. And the logic was, that Mary gives birth to the person of Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, and that person is God and divine. So on one level, you can speak of Mary giving birth to God. Now, I need to make a clarification here. No early Christian theologian believed that Mary somehow created God or anything like this. All they're trying to say is that when Mary gave birth, she gave birth to a person who is divine and human. There is no orthodox objection to that. Protestants, evangelicals, we ought to be able to affirm that. Uh, even though this doctrine becomes much more important in the Roman Catholic Church than in the evangelical tradition. Nestorius said, well, that's weird. I'm uncomfortable saying that uh, Mary gave birth to God. So why don't we call her Christotakos, the Christ-bearer? And Nestorius even went so far as to say, she gives birth to the Christ who is just a human being, but becomes divine at his baptism. So Nestorius ends up affirming another kind of adoptionism. Right, Nestorius's views were condemned at the Council of Ephesus. This happened in the year 381. And in one of the cruel ironies of church history, one of the heroes of Ephesus was a guy named Eutyches, who was an early Christian theologian who made his name and made his fame by criticizing Nestorius. And by saying Nestorius divides the two natures and we end up with this sort of schizophrenic Jesus uh, and the whole economy of salvation falls apart. So Eutyches was a champion of orthodoxy for a little while, for about 70 years. Uh, And then his view was condemned as heretical because he went too far in the opposite direction, trying to overcorrect against Nestorianism. Uh, And so Eutyches, because he was so concerned not to to divide the two natures of Jesus, brought them too close together and actually ended up confusing them, jumbling them. And Eutyches ended up teaching what appears to be uh, a view that Jesus really only has one nature, Uh, and it's divine. Uh, More, We might do better to say that in Eutychius' view, Jesus Christ ends up being what theologians have called a tertium quid, a third thing. Not really fully human, not really fully divine, but sort of a jumble of both of them, where Jesus ends up sort of looking like a Superman or something like this. Um, And this view is equally problematic as Nestorius, right? Because unless Jesus is fully human and fully divine, completely, Human, completely divine, he cannot uh, redeem us. So, uh, as the church tried to wrestle with all of these views circulating about the person of Jesus uh, and evaluating some of them as as good and helpful and others as inadequate and harmful, as sorting out the heresies from orthodox teaching, they came up with two classical statements on Christology that I want to look at as we close our time here together. Uh, and this is in the Nicene Creed. Uh, Some of you may come from church traditions or a background where you said the creed every Sunday, or you may be familiar with the creed. Others of you may not be familiar with it uh, at all, but the Nicene Creed was the product of uh, an ecumenical council, which means a council that assembled the entire church in the year 325, and it produced the Nicene Creed, which, which became a binding and authoritative statement for universal Christians everywhere, and it remains so. Uh, everyone on the Christian spectrum from the Roman Catholics to uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians, Greek Orthodox Christians, high church Anglicans all the way down to four square folks and Pentecostals. We all ought to be able to affirm the Nicene Creed. It is a universal expression of Christian faith. And as we're going to see the Nicene Creed uh, sometimes uses very clumsy language and you may ask, why are they talking like this? It seems to be talking very circuitously, circuitously. Yeah, that's a word. Circuitously. It seems to be sort of being careful in what it says. And it seems to be very, being, uh, very, very particular in its language. And there's a reason. Because the Nicene Creed is trying to sum up Orthodox teaching about Jesus while ruling out heresies without naming them, right? Uh, so one of the things you'll notice about early Christian statements of faith is they're very clearly rejecting heresies, but they're not giving those heretics the dignity of naming them. So when I teach this at the seminary with my students, we play a game called Guess the Heresy, and where we read through a statement of faith, and then we have to try to determine what view is being ruled out. Now, since you're not here to interact with me, I'm going to have to play by myself. So it's not going to be as fun, but hopefully you'll get the gist of it, right? So let's read through the Nicene Creed together. This is on your study guide here. Uh, This document dates to the year 325 when all these Christological heresies are swirling and the church is trying to hammer out its doctrine of Jesus. So this is how it reads. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten. Now, let's pause here for a second. This word begotten is very, very important. The church was highly selective in choosing this word to talk about Jesus. And the reason is, it's got a very particular meaning. Uh, In English, we only use the word, word begotten in one context. We use it to talk about begetting children. And we don't really say that anymore because it's sort of an old English thing to say. But when we talk about begetting children, our children are begotten of their parents. And what that means is they share the same genetic material as their parents right? Uh, And so the early church wanted to use this language to talk about Jesus, eternally begotten of the father, meaning that he shares the same substance with the father. Uh, We're going to pick up on this theme in our next uh, document that we're going to look at here in just a minute. So hold that thought in the back of your mind, we'll come back to it. So only begotten, that is from the substance of the father. The word here in Greek, which is the original language of the creed, is homoousius, of the same stuff as the father. So here Arius's view, is being ruled out. The idea that Jesus is of similar substance to the Father is being rejected. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Okay, very important. When we use the word make, we typically mean that we are assembling something from materials that exist outside of us, right? You make a sandwich. You don't beget it. Nobody would make a sandwich and then say, behold this sandwich which I have begotten. No, we make a sandwich means it's from different materials. So when the creed says that Jesus is begotten, not made, what it is saying is that Jesus shares a divine essence with the father, and he's not made with any kind of stuff that the father does not consist of. Okay. Very technical language, but very important. Begotten, not made of one substance, homoousius, with the father, through whom uh, through whom all things in heaven and on earth came into being, who on account of us human beings and for our salvation came down and took on flesh, becoming a human being. Now that last clause is important too. Took on flesh. This is rejecting any sort of Gnostic understanding of Jesus, whether it's docetism mainly, the idea that Jesus didn't really take on a human body. That's being uh, stridently rejected by the creed. He becomes a human being in the fullest sense of the word. Um, As we come to a close and start to wrap things up, I want to end here with a Chalcedonian definition. This is a document that dates to 451. Uh, The Council of Nicaea had solved some Christological problems, primarily Arianism, but then other Christological heresies arose, particularly Nestorianism and Eutychianism. And so Chalcedon, which is in Asia Minor, uh, Turkey, was a council that was convened in the year 451 to hammer out some more Christological doctrines and uh, solve some of the controversies that had been raging in the centuries since the Council of Nicaea. The result is a document called the Chalcedonian Definition. Okay, Uh You probably have never heard of this this document unless there's something wrong with you and you're deranged and you read uh, patristic theology in your spare time, but you will all recognize the theology of the Chalcedonian definition. Another way of putting it is if you come from an evangelical church, your Christology is Chalcedonian, whether you recognize it or not, because the Chalcedonian definition came to be the most authoritative statement on Christology. And it is binding on all of the churches across every tradition, whether they recognize it or not. And here again, you're going to notice the sort of very clumsy and very uh, selective use of language here. And here again, they're being very careful to rule out heresies without naming them. So let's go through it together. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. So there's that idea, fully divine, fully human, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul. So that's ruling out that view called Apollinarianism, which taught that Jesus didn't have a human soul or a human mind. Uh, The Chalcedonian definition says, of course he did, because he was fully human in every way. He had a reasonable soul. He had a human psychology and a human body, as we've already talked about. Of one substance, homoousius with the Father, as regards his Godhead. But listen to this. Like us in all respects, apart from sin. Uh, And so the the Chalcedonian definition is saying, just as Jesus is homoousius with the Father, he is also homoousius with us. He shares the same human nature that you and I have, apart from sin. Uh, So... uh, Yeah, as regards to his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages. Uh, The Chalcedonian definition teaches that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, He has always existed. The Son has always been. That's a shot at Arius, who taught that there was a time that the Son was not. Uh, No, the Chalcedonian definition says Jesus has always been. Though The Son has always been, I should say, more properly. See, when you talk about Christology, it's only a matter of time before you confess a heresy. So I apologize, and I recant. The son has always existed. Uh, he becomes Jesus of Nazareth in the incarnation. So uh, begotten for us and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God So there's theotokos. That's a shot at Nestorius. We have to talk about the person who is born uh, of, from the Virgin Mary uh, is fully God and fully human. One and the same Christ, son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, Without confusion, so that's a shot at Eutyches, who had confused the two natures to the point that they're not distinguishable. Uh, without change, without division, without separation, that's a shot at Nestorius, who taught that the divine nature could be doing one thing while the human nature does something else, right? So the divine nature does miracles while the human nature gets a sandwich or whatever, right? They're not separable in that way. They can't be divided. The distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union. Now, this is where things get really tricky. uh, According to the Chalcedonian fathers, the human and the divine natures in Jesus can be distinguished, but they can't be separated. Okay? This is making your head hurt. I know. Me too. Right? But rather, the characteristic of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one subsistence, meaning one acting subject, one person who can do verbs. You can think of it that way. Uh, Not parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is to say that the church had to take such great care in developing its Christological doctrine because everything is at stake if Jesus is not fully God and fully human. Right? If he is not fully divine, he cannot rescue us. He is a creature. And if he is a creature, then he's in the same boat as other creatures like you and me, stuck in our sin Slaves to death, right? And if he's not fully human, then he cannot take our human nature up into himself and to redeem us and to join us together with God as we were meant to originally. So uh, if he is only God, we're still stuck. If he is only human, we are still stuck. And so it was salvific concerns, the doctrine of salvation that framed the way that the early church thought about the person of Jesus Christ. So let's pull it all together. The Chalcedonian definition expresses a doctrine that you may have heard before, the hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means person, right? Or nature, right? And so the hypostatic union uh, is the permanent union of a human nature with the divine person of the logos, the son of God, Joined together in the human person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this union is permanent, right? We see, uh, for instance, in the the doctrine of the ascension, that Jesus returns to the right hand of the Father as a human being. And so, uh, as many theologians have pointed out, there is a human being right now. Think about this. There is a human being at the right hand of the Father right now, governing the universe together with God the Father. Now that's pretty interesting because it shows that the incarnation takes our human nature and it exalts it to be in God's presence. Pretty remarkable stuff. So how do we sum it up in simple, regular people talk? Jesus Christ is true God and true human, one person with two natures. One person with two natures. So there are not two persons. There's not a human person and a divine person. There are two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, in one person. Now, uh, I know uh, this is tiring, it's taxing. I appreciate your time. But I do encourage you this week, reflect on the majesty of the hypostatic union, that God uh, who needs nothing, who lacks nothing, who dwells in unapproachable light, would somehow see fit to come and inhabit a human nature to join himself to all the weakness and frailty that comes with having a human body and a human mind so that we might be reunited with God. It's a tremendous thought. And I'll leave you with it this week. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everyone.